Hello, hello, and welcome to this very first installment in a brand new series of podcasts, Your Brain in the Time of COVID-19. Emily and I are both PhD students in neuroscience, she at Johns Hopkins, I at Duke NUS, and we're both curious about what might be happening in the brain as it tries to cope with the topsy-turviness that all our lives have become due to this new pandemic. And over the span of this podcast series, we are going to explore this different aspect of our psychology during this pandemic. Today, we are looking at what really happens in your brain and body during times of stress, like this COVID-19 pandemic we're all experiencing right now, and what we can do about it. With that, let's jump right into it. This is your brain in the time of COVID-19, the anxious brain. So Emily, our very first podcast, and I'm so excited. Um, I really want to start with a question. And I think it would be nice for us to do a bit of an introduction to what really motivated both of us to do this episode. I mean, why right. anxiety and stress in the time of COVID? I mean, it's really pertinent, no doubt. But why was mm -hmm. it important for you to do this particular episode? Yeah, so this idea came to mind when my state government issued a stay-at-home order. Mm. Because... I just found it so hard to stay productive and I was I found myself like going through a lot of emotions that I wasn't familiar with. Mm. Yeah, I, I think I think we're quickly realizing that, you know, with the human and economic toll, this pandemic has really created a very real and widespread emotional toll and taken right, its right. toll yeah. on mental health. Yeah. So I wanted to learn a little bit more about what was going on in my brain to help myself cope with this stressful time. Like when I was younger, learning about the time course of an immune response has offered me a lot of strength when I felt sick. Yeah. Because like I came to understand, for example, the fever I was suffering from was actually my immune system trying to fight back. And this understanding has made me feel that I have just a little bit more control over the situation. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's so wonderful to hear you. And I totally agree with that because knowledge really is power, isn't it? And it's, it's interesting because I do the exact things you just talked about um, in terms right? of the system. Yeah, I, I hate getting injured or hurt if I fall down or cut myself, what's much worse than the pain itself is the anxiety and the panic it sets off. And so when I was younger, I'd like really go into hysterics. But the way I've learned to calm myself down is talking myself through the, some of the things you're talking about. Um, you know, mm. talking myself through what's happening in my body, like the immune response and the complement system. I think we're on the same page. Like knowing what's going on in your body is the first step to regaining some control. Hey, yeah. So for me, by doing this episode, I really hope we can share with our listeners the strength that we found in understanding what's happening in our heads in this stressful time. We should also touch on some tangible things we can do to help get through this pandemic. To begin with, I really wanted to share um, a text message my grandpa recently sent me because I felt like it just like so perfectly captured the mood of this pandemic. So he wrote it in Chinese, but I'll try to translate it to English. 
He said that um, I've been through wars, famines, cultural revolution, the 2003 SARS. I have lived 90 years in this world. I've seen everything, yet I still feel lost, confused, powerless in this COVID-19 pandemic. Wow. And I just feel like this sentiment is really shared by a lot of us around the world. So I guess for anyone who's listening, just know that if you are feeling stressed right now, you're definitely not alone. And in fact, our body really have legitimate reasons to feel stressed right now. Oh, totally. And it's something we've never really encountered before as humanity. Hey, like yeah. no one really knows for sure what our future is going to hold. Not even like the most experienced of us. And that's that's really scary. Exactly. So when I was researching for this episode, I read a lot actually about our fear of uncertainty because I felt it's mm-hmm. so relevant for what we're going through right now. Okay. So before sharing what I've read, I wanted to ask you, Gaia, which of the following scenarios would make you more stressed? Like, is it more stressful not knowing whether you make it to an important meeting on time? Or is it more stressful knowing for sure you would be late? Ooh, let me think. I think <laughs> I'd be way more stressed not knowing if I'll make it on time. Yeah, <laughs> I know both of these scenarios are highly stressful, but neuroscientists from University College London who studied fear of uncertainty would probably say not knowing whether you'd make it on time is actually way more stressful. Mm. So in this experiment they did in 2016, they asked the participant to play a game. In this game, as a participant, you encounter on the computer screen some rocks, one after another, after another. And there are two kinds of rocks you encounter and they look a little bit different. One kind is safe and the other is likely to have a snake hidden underneath and it will bite you. <laughs> Ooh, that doesn't sound like a fun game at all. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I am really, really glad these people are paid. I checked in their message section. <laughs> Because like to mimic the bites, you actually feel a small electrical shock on your finger. Ooh. And the rule of the game is you have to guess whether you get bitten and you earn money for guessing correctly. Ah. And you do this for multiple rounds. In some rounds, if you see the snake rock, you're 90% likely going to see a snake underneath and get bitten. Like it's pretty certain you get bitten if you see that snake rock. But in other rounds, if you see the snake rock, you're only 50% likely to find a snake underneath. It means that you do not actually have a clue at all whether you get bitten or not. That sounds highly stressful, Emily. I know. It's meant to be really, really stressful. So, you know, when you're stressed, your hands sweat and your pupils mm. actually dilate to let more light in, allowing you to see better. And it's automatic and you can't control it. And in this experiment, the scientists measure how much your hands sweat and how much your pupils dilate to objectively measure how stressed you are. And they found that people are more stressed when they're uncertain if they'll get bitten or not. Mm. Like they sweat and their pupil dilate even more than when they know for sure they will get bitten. Like they're more stressed when the consequence may not actually be as bad. 
that's that's so interesting and it's so irrational and odd isn't it because why would we be so disproportionately stressed out by uncertainty right yeah has has anyone studied this yeah so evolutionary biologists say it's because uncertain situations are in fact when our actions matter the most oh think back to the scenario where you didn't know if you'd be late for the important meeting you got to try everything you can for example, if like me, you don't own a car, you got to work your brain to compare different public transport options. I see. Yeah, yeah. My body's probably getting ready for that final sprint up the stairs. <laughs> so what you're saying is that the stress in our body is our body's way to prepare us for the best outcome in, a time, in times of uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it beautiful? So there's this small detail from the snake bug experiment that we talked about before that I found really interesting. So in that experiment, the people who got the most stressed out by uncertainty actually performed the best overall in their prediction. Oh, wow. And as a result, earned the most amount of money. <laughs> that's, that's cool. That, that's really powerful. So what you're saying is our bodies get super stressed about uncertainty, even way more than bad consequences that we know are going to happen. And this yeah. is because our bodies are getting ready for us to do our best about this, these uncertain situations. Yeah, that's exactly right. Maybe we should actually accept our fear of uncertainty for what it really is. The evolutionary gift that has safeguarded us through our lives and will hopefully also safeguard us out of this pandemic. Yeah, actually, it's interesting you say that stress is an evolutionary gift that has safeguarded us because actually we didn't really pay attention to it till about 100 years ago. Oh, really? What do you mean? It's an interesting story. I mean, stress, the medical term, like the, phys like the psychological phenomena defined by symptoms that we, as we know of it today, was only like discovered, described and defined less than 100 years ago. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, the history of stress is really quite interesting. And you know, I love the history of discovery and reading what resulted <laughs> in a discovery. It's crazy how many findings are purely accidental. Yeah, yeah, you can really go down a rabbit hole. And, like, <laughs> nerding out about the history of science is like such a joy. Yeah. So actually, the English word for stress goes way back to the 14th century. It comes from the Latin word strictus, to draw tight. What? Wow, that's actually so accurate. It's like when I'm stressed out, every part of my body does feel like squeezing tight. Right. However, we did not recognize how stress affects the body until around the time of the First World War. So a lot of mm -hmm. the soldiers were coming back from the front and they were describing all kinds of symptoms of trauma that weren't really physical injuries. They were suffering from what we now know today to be PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. But back then, people didn't really know what it was about and actually didn't even believe it to be real. What? Yeah, so the unfortunate bit of all of this was that the soldiers who were like obviously suffering but who had no physical injuries were actually sent back out to the front. Some of them were even oh. called cowards, put on trial and executed. Oh, that's 
that that that's truly horrible. Like right? I can't imagine suffering something this painful and like not even having the language to describe what it was. Right. Truly horrible. Okay. So the story of stress, um, as we know of it today, um, starts with the experiment of two scientists, Walter Bradford Cannon, working at Harvard College, and Hans Selye, working at Montreal around this time. So they were both um, they both started their graduate studies looking at how external stresses change the way the body reacts. Mm. Um, they were asking questions about what was happening inside the body in response to an external stress. So it was huh. Cannon, actually, in 1929, who suggested for the first time that the reason the way the body responds to acute stress the way it does is all because of adrenaline. Adrenaline? Like adrenaline rush? Right, exactly. So... Let's quickly have a look at what's happening in your body when you feel stressed. M, when you feel stressed, let's say before a big presentation, oh, no. what are you feeling? Gosh, I, I really hate public speaking. <laughs> like I can always hear my heart beating faster and heavier. And I get this mm. weird, heavy feeling in my stomach and my hands start shaking. Oh my gosh, yeah, so uncomfortable, hey. Yeah. So when you're scared, when you're, when you're getting nervous, in, in your brain, specifically an almond-shaped area sitting deep inside your brain called the amygdala, is processing that fear and stress. And it sends out a message to one of the major command centers that connect the brain to the rest of the body called the hypothalamus. Huh, I see. So how does all of this tie in with adrenaline? So the hypothalamus then releases some signals to the adrenal gland that is sitting right near your kidney, telling it to start releasing a chemical called adrenaline into your bloodstream. Huh. Yeah, and adrenaline is really cool because it can single-handedly turn on a bunch of things as it circulates in your blood. It makes your heart beat faster. It makes more sugar available in your blood to supply energy for your muscles. That's why you hear about the adrenaline rush. It's a high because... As breathing increases, the extra oxygen increases alertness in the brain. It's super mm -hmm. fast acting. Most people aren't even aware of how quickly it comes on. But is this the fight or flight response we talk about a lot? Yes, exactly. So Cannon was the one to actually coin that term and suggest that the way the body gets into that fight or flight mode is all because of adrenaline. Wait, you said it's fast, but I feel that often the stress feeling does linger beyond just a moment. How would you explain that? Yeah, excellent question. So this is where the brilliance of Hans Selye comes in. So like Cannon, he was also a doctor by training. But while Cannon was really interested in acute stress, Selye was interested in chronic stress. He was the first person to identify what we now know as stress to underpin the very general symptoms and really non-specific signs of illness um, that people present with, like, like looking tired, having no appetite, apathy, losing weight, etc. Mm. And, and actually, he laid the groundwork for the discovery of the HPA axis in chronic stress. And in fact, his graduate student then went on to get a Nobel Prize for discovering and describing it. Which brings us to, Emily, what do you know about the HPA axis? <laughs> um, 
Um, so I know that the HPA axis refers to the hormonal system in your body connecting H, the hypothalamus, P, the pituitary gland, and A, the adrenal gland. Mm -hmm. And the hypothalamus and pituitary gland live in your brain, and the adrenal glands live far down near your kidney. And you said just then that the hypothalamus tell the adrenal gland to produce adrenaline. That was beautifully described. Exactly. But actually, the HPA axis is also involved in a longer stress response. So to understand chronic stress, you need to understand that actually stress, the stress response comes in two waves. So the first wave is the adrenaline wave that we just talked about. And this happens within seconds. But actually, the body then releases a second wave of hormones in response to a prolonged stress. And this takes several minutes to kick in. But its effects last a lot longer than adrenaline. And so through the pituitary gland, the hypothalamus releases another messenger that tells the adrenal glands to release the stress hormone, also known as cortisol. And mm -hmm. cortisol also increases heart rate and causes the release of glucose from your stores. Mm, it sounds kind of like what adrenaline does. It does almost exactly what adrenaline does, but in a more gradual and sustained manner. The mm, release of, yeah, but the release of glucose, right, by cortisol, because it's sustained, also provides the glucose and energy for your muscles and body to recover after the stress. So it allow because the glucose is present for much longer, it gives you the energy to come back after your fight or flight response. So when there's no threat, there's always a little bit of cortisol that's being secreted in the bloodstream but that quickly gets broken down in the blood and doesn't really contribute to stress. But when you have a stressor, suddenly there's a lot more cortisol being produced and that builds up quickly in your bloodstreams. And before the additional cortisol is broken down, you remain somewhat stressed. It has a longer, more prolonged effect, while adrenaline's effect is a much shorter one. Mm. Now I understand what a lot of us is going through right now. Like, for example, when I see a person coming towards me without a mask, like my fast adrenaline spike goes off and it increases my heart rate and makes me more vigilant. Yep. Then as I'm waiting to cross to the other side of the street, as that person approaches, my body releases the stress hormone and my heart rate stays up for a while. Mm -hmm. And I take in more oxygen, my body continues to prepare heaps of sugar for my muscle to use to run away. Yep. And also to recover after you stop running. Huh. So that, yeah, so that's what's happening in your body when you undergo a stressful situation. But, but something that I'm quite interested in is how stress makes you take decisions. Because we talked about how adrenaline really increases your alertness. And I mean, the fight or flight response is ultimately about making decisions for your, to better your survival. So how does stress push you to make smart, or in some cases, really dumb decisions? <laughs> that is a really great question. <laughs> I can relate to that. A few weeks ago, there was this one afternoon when all of my friends were texting me, oh my God, the shelves are being emptied at the local supermarket. So I went to the supermarket and I saw that it was out of canned food, eggs and meat. Look, I'm usually a very strategic shopper. I like always have a shopping list and everything. But on that day, Faced with the almost empty shelf, I started taking whatever is left, including some things I've never bought before. 
Like I'm actually not a huge fan of beans. <laughs> two bags of frozen green beans still sit there in my freezer.、Oh. Like, what happened to me? Yeah, and what happened to the hundreds of people who were convinced they needed a lot of toilet paper all of a sudden? Yeah, totally. So I decided to read a little bit more on decision making under stress to、mm. find out what is going on, and. Before I go into what I read, I have to say a disclaimer that, you know, neuroscience as a field does not yet actually have definitive answers for how our decisions are made. Honestly, if you think about it, it's probably one of the most challenging things our brain does. Hey. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the most challenging questions in neuroscience that a lot of people are working really hard to understand. So are people in economics and marketing. And of course, many tech companies nowadays、mm. are also interested in this topic, so they can sell us more things. Like、yeah. they use enormous amount of data they're collecting from our online behaviors to study our decision-making process. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I've heard of like neuroeconomics of decision-making and stuff like that.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, as someone who used to beg my college friends to come participate in my little psychology experiment. I would be lying if I said I wasn't jealous of the amount of data available <laughs> to these tech companies to actually, you know, make legit discoveries about how we make decisions. It's like really empowering in an unprecedented way, but at the same time, it's also kind of terrifying. Yeah, I think I think we as society,、um, we're going to be grappling with the ethics of big data for some time to come. Yeah, definitely. So, observing behavior pattern is one way decision making can be studied. In the lab, scientists often design different versions of gambling games、Ooh. to dissect different factors、um, that contribute to our decisions. Ooh, that that really sounds a lot better than being bitten by snakes. <laughs> yeah, so true, so true. Honestly, these gambling games can be quite fun. And on the other hand, some other scientists really wanted to know which brain regions are responsible for decision making, and they tried their best to infer that from people who have lost certain brain regions due to injury or stroke, oh, or from having people playing gambling games while observing their brains in fMRI machines. The machine you may have seen before in movies, where a person can lie in it and get their brain scanned. Yeah. So these fMRI machines tells us which brain regions are the most active and consume the most energy, second by second. Yeah, and I know that some neuroscientists, not satisfied knowing whether it's a front or back or which region of the brain is used, want to actually know what's inside those regions, like how the brain cells are talking to each other. How they figure out what to say to each other, basically. So this would involve having animals do simpler versions of those gambling experiments and using those tiny, tiny electrodes to eavesdrop on brain cells. Hey, sending electrical impulses to one another. <laughs> Don't we love those tiny,、oh, tiny electrodes? <laughs> actually, Gaia and I actually both did our undergrad thesis using these electrodes. I mean, let's be real. It was more of a love-hate relationship. <laughs> yeah, I do find them super annoying when they break, for sure. They do tell us a lot, though. <laughs> okay, so on the behavior pattern level, 
uh, psychologist and behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman has made a lot of interesting series about decision making in uncertainty. Wait, wasn't he the guy? He was awarded Nobel Prize, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Right, in economics in two thousand two, his book "Thinking Fast and Slow" is super yeah. interesting read.、Mm. I, I'm not going to do justice here, but just wanted to try and look at our situation today through the lens of this book. The title "Thinking Fast and Slow" actually refers to two kinds of thinking process we use to solve the problems: the intuitive process versus the deliberative process. So the intuitive process operates automatically and effortlessly, like like when we're reading、um, a facial expression, maybe, or like riding a bicycle down the street. Is that what you mean?、Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's quick and based on heuristic, and we use it a lot for routine tasks.、Mm. On the other hand, the deliberative process requires concentrating and reasoning through logic, like when we work through a math problem. It takes a lot of energy, and it is in our nature to actually reserve it for some more complicated problems. Yeah, otherwise we'd be exhausted all the time. Even more exhausted than we are now. Can you imagine? So I was. Reading the literature on stress, and my biggest impression is that it's very complicated how stress changes our decision making. It is definitely at the forefront of neuroscience research. Like I can name at least a couple of friends off the top of my head whose ongoing PhD thesis projects、mm. are on this topic. It's actively being researched as we speak. That's that's really cool. But but do we can we pinpoint? Just one area of the brain that makes decisions. Do we know?、Mm, that's a really great question. Like many brain areas are involved in decision making. Our final decision is often a result of all of these brain areas weighing in and nudging us、mm. in their own little ways. It's like a loud family meeting, if you know what I mean, but <laughs> on a millisecond timescale. So. Many brain areas involved in decision making have receptors that listen to adrenaline and cortisol,、mm. and when the stress signal is released, these brain areas, these uncles and aunties in your brain, <laughs> all react to it, but in totally different ways. Some get even louder, some get quieter,、oh. some get dramatic and weird. <laughs> so. One major change is that stress tends to shift our thinking pattern from more deliberative to more intuitive. Like we tend to focus a little bit more on the here and now instead of our past experiences、mm. or future outlooks. Yeah. However, to what extent these changes occur depends a lot on the coping style of each person,、mm. which is a result of your brain physiology. Like how much adrenaline or cortisol your body produces in response to a certain stress trigger. Also, perhaps how your brain originally is wired to work. For example, how you perceive the task at hand. Like, do you think you have something to lose or something to gain, or if you think it's a moral decision or not? So, what you're saying is everyone's coping with stress just a little bit differently. Exactly. It actually reminds me of a story about crafts that I heard from、oh. my personal scientific hero, Eve Marda, in a seminar. So you know, crabs and lobsters actually have this rhythmic stomach movement that help them move food along. 
It's a little bit like heartbeat, but of the stomach.、Mm. It is controlled by a team of only a few neurons, and they seem to function the same way in every crab. It goes rhythmically on and on and on, helping them digest. However, if you start to gradually increase the temperature of the water,、okay. which is super stressful for crabs because they can't maintain their body temperature like us, this rhythm of stomach movement starts to mess up. And what's really surprising is that it messes up in a very different way in every crab. Oh wow! Some quickly, some slowly, following different trajectory. Oh, poor crabs. <laughs> All、no. happy crabs are alike. Each unhappy crab is unhappy with its own trajectory. <laughs> yeah, this is because to survive, the team of neurons would somehow have evolved to be able to do the job of pushing the food along in their normal temperature、yeah. niche.、Uh-huh. It doesn't matter how each team does their job, but they get the job done. However, when an unusually stressful situation occurs. How each team of neurons does their job, and how the personality of each team、oh. member is, will determine how resilient they will be to the stress. That's so interesting.、Um, and you know what? This it really reminds me of the work of Richard Lazarus, who I think for the first time showed that actually, whether we find a situation stressful or not, is really based on how much attention and importance. Or in neuroscience speak, known as cognitive appraisal, we give、mm-hmm. to a situation and what coping strategies, what a person's coping strategies are, and I think he really laid the foundation for some of the ways we now try to help people cope with stress. You know, like behavioral therapy, exercise, expressing gratitude, meditation, etc. Yeah, we are hit with this huge, foreign, stressful situation, and all our brains are going to react a little bit differently. Yeah, I think we we should be cognizant of the fact that actually all of us are stressed out, and we should be more understanding of how people around us are coping. I mean, a lot of us would focus more on the here and now and rely more on、right. our intuition, intuition than del- careful deliberation. But yeah, some of、mm. us also respond in slightly different ways because of how our brains are built to begin with. Yeah, so true. Some of us panic by and then regret. <laughs> Dude, it's 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 a stressful time. I mean, I totally understand the do first and think later. The thing is, with this situation, you don't even know how long you need to plan for, right, and cope for. I mean, should I buy supplies for、mm. a week, a month, a couple of months? Yeah, that's so true. Like, it's really sobering to think that now that summer is upon us and. In the last six months, at least one part of the world has been under lockdown. Yeah, and so that acute stress we've talked about can really become chronic stress, can't it? Here's the thing: we just don't know how it's going to morph and what the long-term effects are going to be. Hmm. Yeah, I remember for the first two weeks of staying at home, all I read on social media and could think of is COVID. And I felt it's harder、oh. to concentrate, harder to sleep, and、oh. I became more on edge. It felt like the stress never moved away, and I wonder if that's what chronic stress feels like. 
Yeah, look, imagine that adrenaline and HPA activation, which we talked about earlier, having a prolonged effect. If your hormone levels don't return to base, the cortisol starts mm. having a persistent on effect on all your organs. Instead of the few minutes it's supposed to act and wear off, it just keeps going. And that really wears down your body, right? And can disrupt right. almost every organ function right down to the cells in your body. So then you start having to deal with things like high blood pressure because the cortisol is making your heart pump harder, but in a sustained manner for a much longer time. Actually, sustained stress has been shown to increase risk of stroke and heart disease. And the cortisol that makes you release more glucose from your stores, right? Originally supposed to give you energy, but then more glucose consistently means that your insulin system is dysregulated. And high levels of stress have actually been shown to increase the risk of diabetes. Mm. The list just goes on. You end up with sleep deprivation because of the adrenaline. It increases your risk for digestive tract issues. It even oh, no. weakens your immune system. And that's no, physical. Yeah. that's what we don't want. <laughs> right. And don't even let me get started on the havoc it wreaks on your mental health, chronic anxiety, lack of motivation and focus, anger, fatigue. It just really wears the body down. Oh boy. Wow. Yeah. How, how do we cope? Like any advice? I was actually, you know, I worry about you because you live so far from your friends and family in Australia because mm. several studies have shown how important it is for us as humans to socialize because it activates a reward system in the brain when we which, which we can talk about another day but that reward system really dampens down the cycle of worry I mean mm. even in mice and monkeys after facing a stressor they do better and they're less stressed when they're comforted and consoled by other mice and monkeys so I think my advice would be call friends and family, reach out to people you haven't talked to in a while and be kind, check in on persons you know are living by themselves, check in on older people, video call them if you can manage it, but even a text will just do. Mm, that's actually really, really excellent advice. Mm. So, you know, by week two, I actually deleted Twitter off my phone oh, wow. and took a break from the constant news feed I actually yeah. spent time like contacting real people in my life and yeah. it was like very very helpful for me because it's so natural for our brain to empathize with others pain but it can really be overwhelming when we are fed with worrisome news from all around the world mm -hmm. like our brain is not built to deal with so much yeah and another thing that I found helpful is that I also gave up forcing myself to work on a set schedule. <laughs> <laughs> I was like really ambitious to begin with, but I often end up feeling super guilty when I cannot fulfill my plan. Yeah. So just accepting how I feel and coming back to work when I feel better have worked really well for me. That's wonderful. What, mm, what have you found helpful? I think, I think, I think in all stressful situations, I found three things to be super helpful. I always try to get good sleep, eat healthy, and exercise. Mm, totally. Yeah. Even if I do nothing else productive on that day, I make sure to do these three things. Emily, taking care of yourself is productive. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're totally right.
Um, I think exercise really does it for me because, you know, there's so many benefits. It increases blood flow, releases endorphins, which is like the feel-good hormone, and also produces better sleep. All in all, it's like an extremely effective tool to manage stress. And, there, and you know, there are so many free exercise videos out there that you can do in the living room. I, I mean, you can even, if you're ambitious enough, do what that guy in France did, which is like run a marathon in your balcony. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah i think he finished it like six hours or something which is super impressive oh my i mean i would have been dead tired <laughs> yeah and also get dizzy from all the turning in the maybe he has a big yeah. balcony <laughs> <laughs> mm. and i can go on for hours about how wonderful sleep is like i'm i study it but i'm not exaggerating when i say it works like a panacea like mm. for reasons that are still not completely known to us sleep really helps boost our mood our memory and our immune system which is what, it, what we really want to be yeah. working right now yeah like when we're in isolation there's no enforced structure to our day but trust me the best thing we can do to our body is to try to sleep and wake up the same time okay. every day sometimes i do feel like it's harder to fall asleep when you're stressed so if that's the case, then I think taking a hot shower or keeping the room dark and keeping electronics away would help us oh, relax. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, what I also do is before I sleep, I also write in my journal. So I've done it for a few years now, and it is often just two or three sentences in my pocket planner, hmm. you know, because like, there's so much going on yeah. psychologically, but often you feel like you are safe and you're healthy, like you don't have a right to complain. Yeah. And you often feel guilty for feeling like unhappy or stressed, like you don't want to bother other people with your worries. Yeah. But I just write totally honestly about how I feel in my journal. And it really feels like whatever baggage I was carrying in my mind during the day is then just left on the paper. Wonderful. So I don't have to then carry it to bed anymore. Yeah. Also, I think like it's a way to bear witness to the strange period of time we're going through right now. That's wow. That's amazing. I feel like I, I should take it up now. Okay, so exercise, eat healthy, sleep, journaling. I really, I think, I really hope these tips are in some small way useful and helpful to our listeners. I think with that, uh, we've come to the end of what we had planned to discuss today. Emily, can I end with a quote by Dr. Salier? Yeah, go for it. He said, stress is not necessarily something bad. It all depends on how you take it. The stress of exhilarating, creative, successful work is beneficial, while that of failure, humiliation, or infection is detrimental. Can I just say, Gaia, it was super fun producing this first episode with you and learning all about the brain in this stressful time. Yeah, me too. And for our listeners, if you have enjoyed this episode or have some suggestions for Emily and myself for future episodes, please leave us a review 
um, from wherever you're listening. Yeah, that would really mean the world to us. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about us. Please join us next time, where we explore what happens to our brain during isolation in the episode, The Lonely Self-Isolating Brain. We hope you'll stay safe, take care of yourself and each other.